0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In our first lesson of the revival module, Philip Edwards opens the module by defining what revival is and its necessity in God's strategy. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching.
1: Well, we've got four weeks together. I think there's a a May uh, bank holiday break in there, but uh, basically it's four weeks where we'll be looking at this subject of revival. Going to ask several questions, ask what it is what's its purpose, how do revivals start and what happens in a revival and also what happens after the revival is finished. So we're going to look at it and uh, I hope it's a a subject that uh, excites you. I just quote from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a renowned preacher from the 20th century. He's not with us now, but I do remember hearing him preach on, on just the one occasion. He said this about revival. I know of nothing in my own experience that is more exhilarating and helpful and that acted more frequently as a tonic to me than the history of revivals. Church history, and especially the history of revivals, is one of the best antidotes to a preacher's discouragement and depression in the time we are living in. So it is the reading about this and the remembering of the tremendous moves of God and all the exciting things that happen, it does does boost us up. It does give us a hope for God to come and do something powerfully in the future. I trust as we look at this, it will be, as the doctor uh, prescribed there, it'll be a tonic to you. Uh, something that will give you real hope and uh, a, a belief that God is going to do something in our nation that he needs to very shortly, I believe. Before we come to any conclusions about what a revival is, I want to just share with you at first what a revival isn't. Because you might have been in some movements of God and you might have been in some exciting meetings or gatherings and thought, oh, this is wonderful, But really are these revivals? Firstly then, revival is not evangelism. Often churches describe uh, services, uh, evangelistic meetings, as revivals. It's not a common expression in the UK but it is one in the US. They talk about revival meetings And I understand what they're saying. They're going to preach the gospel and look for people to get saved. But that's not truly a revival. We have in this country, not particularly revival meetings, but we have evangelistic crusades. And we know that undoubtedly they draw thousands of people to Christ. If you've ever been in one, it's an exciting place to be and you experience the the power of God, the presence of God, and the movement of God, and you might see hundreds or even thousands of people coming forward to give their lives to Christ. I've had the privilege of being in a number of these, and uh, I'll just share the examples that I have. Um, I remember as a, a, I think I was about 17, 16 or 17, I, I grew up in Wembley, and Billy Graham came to London many times. Well, he came to uh, Wembley and preached at the Wembley Stadium in about, I think it was 67. So I would have been a 17 year old uh, schoolboy in those days. And I remember being in the stadium with my mother and father as Billy Graham preached. And there were 70,000 people in the stadium. The place was completely packed. There was not a seat or standing room because in those days you stood in, in a lot of the stadium. There was not a place free. It was exciting and I remember I took a friend of mine from school and uh, as we listened together to the gospel. I remember also in the 1980s when Louis Palau came to London and there was a big mission throughout the whole of London. I think it was in 84 and uh, this was held in uh, uh, Queens Park Rangers football stadium and I think there were about 20,000 people there. And it went on night after night after night, and it was, yeah, tremendous, powerful meetings. Also, I remember once when I went on a mission to uh, Tanzania in the capital Dar es Salaam, I went to a, uh, a crusade with Reinhard Bonnke. In fact, I was, I, I was part of the team that was on the stage. It was really an exciting thing to be involved in, and it wasn't just a one-off visit, but I was there for the whole week and uh, got involved in the whole ministry, so so that was exciting. There were about 40,000 that that came to that meeting, and, and many, uh, well, hundreds and thousands came forward to receive Christ, and I saw many hundreds being delivered and set free and healed and uh, blind eyes open. So, yeah, tremendous crusade meetings, powerful meetings. Uh, they're not revivals, but they are the movement of God working with man to do evangelism. I just note here that Reinhard Bonke he did a lot of work in Nigeria and in 2000 he held one meeting and 1.6 million people attended the one meeting of Reinhard Bonke there. Now his ministry, Christ for All Nations, you might have read things about it and obviously he's not with us now, but he has recorded 80 million documented decisions for christ yes 80 million through that one ministry alone that's evangelism evangelism is an expression of the church it's brought about It's the combination of both man working and god working and of course it's primarily the power and the working of god but man man works with god on this it is is a combination it is a team effort but that's not revival revival is something that is brought about by god alone it's not man's involvement man doesn't do anything in this it is simply god coming god presenting himself in a in a wonderful way that that he doesn't do it all the time evangelism then is the work that men do for God. Revival is the work that God does for men. The second thing that revival isn't, revival is not the restoration of backslidden Christians. There are times in special, maybe, conventions or large rallies or conferences or Bible weeks that large Numbers of Christians get together. You could be thinking of something like Focus or New Wine or Spring Harvest, literally thousands of Christians coming together. And what you see is um, maybe Christians who have gone off the boil, can I put it like that, or a little bit lethargic or have cooled off in their passion. In that environment of thousands of people worshipping and some some good preaching and, and the power of God moving, you see people rededicating themselves to Christ, getting enthused or inspired again. You might have been in some of these conventions and meetings, and I've been in quite a number, and it's, it's very difficult to go and not be touched or inspired or challenged by this. They're highly desirable things, and they're worthy of our gratitude and praise to God that he does these. But that's not revival, though. No revival is not as well it's not an unusual sense of god's presence resting on a particular church for a number of weeks or months now this happens quite regularly all over the world that uh, whatever the circumstances are around the church whatever's going on in the church it might be the commitment of the people or some movement of the spirit of god but the spirit seems to come and rest on a church And for a number of days or weeks or months even, tremendous things happen in that church. They don't seem to happen anywhere else, simply to the congregation that are there. Tremendous blessing comes upon them. I remember back in the 70s, the church that Daphne and I attended in London. There was a significant move of the Spirit of God just over this church. It came through the deliverance ministry. There was a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit yeah, things were very powerful as you came into the church and you had your services and there was a real touch of God on things. It was in that time, I remember now, that there were four couples that because of this move of God, it was the catalyst for them to go into full-time ministry. And Daphne and I, that's where we made this decision or God moved upon us to, to go into full-time Christian ministry. I remember going to Toronto in '94. They they call it the Toronto blessing, but really the Toronto blessing was the movement and the power of God over one particular fellowship. If you moved out of that fellowship to other churches, there was no great movement of God. But in this vineyard, this uh, Toronto vineyard church, uh, there was a tremendous move of the power of God. And meetings went on every day for for several years, actually. And I went and was part of that and in, enjoyed that. And again, again, I went to a church in Florida, uh, Ignited Church, which was in 2008. Now, there's some cloud of... Um, yeah, if I, I mentioned the evangelist that was there, you might think, oh, I've heard some bad things about him. His name was Todd Bentley. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, there wasn't some good stuff about Todd Bentley. But I have to say that the Spirit of God moved quite powerfully in the meetings. Now, actually, when I got there, Todd Bentley had already gone. So I never actually heard him speak. But the power of God was was very evident and powerful in the place. And as I listened to the minister who was there, then he was saying that in this particular area in Florida, this experience had happened maybe 10 or 14 times in churches in that area there'd be a tremendous move of the power of God over just one fellowship. So if people wanted the blessing, they had to come to that fellowship. Often they could come away from the fellowship and there would be a blessing. So I remember when I went to Toronto and I sat in this whole meeting for a week and experienced all the wonderful things of God. As I came home, I brought the blessing with me. And what I discovered is when I stood to preach in a number of churches, I remember going down to Southampton and across to the south of London and different places, the power of God would simply come down with tremendous force. as though I was carrying something to these churches where the Spirit of God would come and tremendous things would happen and uh, it was evident that the, the power of God was there. But in the strictest sense, that's not a revival either. It cannot be described as a revival. While a revival, um, we see the salvation of sinners, which I've already mentioned, those thousands of people coming to Christ. The restoration of backsliders happens, that Christians become uh, revived in their own hearts and lives. And the unusual sense of God's presence in the place, in the building, with the people. All of these things happen... They're all byproducts of revival. They are not revivals in themselves. A revival includes all of these things that I've been talking about, yet it surpasses them all. It's something greater than those things that I've explained to you. What then, what is revival? What is this revival thing that I'm talking about? The truth is, it's impossible to define it adequately now. That's understandable if it's all of God. You can't explain or describe all of what God does because it's God. So revival is grander, it's greater, it's more glorious than anything that could be said or written about it. If you, I've read uh, a whole number of books, maybe 10 or a dozen books about revival, of course, they all, all, it looks as though they're repeating the same thing, but they're not. They're giving little nuances and and different shades and colours and how the thing happened and how God did things. And it's just a report of what God did. It's not trying to define what it is. One preacher said that revival is like David in Saul's armour. It just doesn't fit. It's something so grand and glorious, uh, it, it's awkward to be in it, and you can't describe what it is. Selwyn Hughes, uh, some of you might know Selwyn or even heard him. Uh, he was the director of uh, Crusade for World Revival. He wrote the little booklets, Every Day with Jesus. He was the uh, author of those originally. He said this, he said, if you can explain a revival, then it's not a revival. So all the explanations and everything that's said, they're all valuable. They're all precious. They're all people's impressions. But don't try and put God in a box ever. He doesn't fit. He won't go. It's not possible. But we will try to find a working definition And so to do that, the best place to go is obviously Scripture. And I'm going to give you a possible uh, definition that might draw us a little bit closer to what it is. It's found in Isaiah 64. It's the first three verses. It says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You know, when I read that, first of all, I'm always reminded of that passage where it says when Jesus was baptised in Mark's Gospel, it says God tore the heavens open and the Spirit came down. So the idea of God ripping, ripping the heavens open. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, he says, and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze, and causes water to boil. He says it again, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, he says it again, you came down and the mountains tremble before you. So it's clear, Isaiah is clear that these revivals, these Uh, visitations of god is god himself coming down now it's not god of course it's god's spirit but there's no holding back it's as though the spirit of god comes in his fullness to us and he's he's released to do tremendous things through us so it's it's given in these terms god coming down amongst us god himself being with us you came down it's so intense. It's like a consuming fire that burns everything in its path, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Can you imagine the power, pre and present, to do that, set things into flame, to boil water if it appears before it? The writer of Hebrews, uh, he describes a scene for us. It's in Hebrews 12, 18 to 21 Uh, is making a reference to when the children of Israel were called uh, to prepare themselves to go up Mount Sinai to come into the presence of God. Remember after they left uh, left Egypt and they they came across the Red Sea and they travelled down to the region of Sinai, they got to the mountain, and they were camped there for about 18 months or so. And it's there that Moses received the Ten Commandments and the laws and the pattern for the tabernacle and all that. But God's plan was that the people of God, every one of them, should ascend the Mount of the Lord and go into the presence of God and come down from the mounting and go out into the whole world to evangelize the world. They were supposed to be a royal priesthood, every one of them a priest for their king, a royal priesthood. But of course, when it came to it, although they had prepared themselves to do it, they were terrified by what they saw. This is how uh, the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews twelve eighteen. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. So he's talking about us. We have Come to God, and he explains a little bit later. It's good if you read that whole passage. I won't do that tonight. Just want to draw out what it is like to be in the presence of God. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, physically, Mount Sinai. And that is, now he describes what they were facing as they came to this mountain. It's burning with fire. So the whole mountain to them was a burning fire. The whole mountain, a burning fire. To darkness, to gloom and to storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that, th- that those who heard it begged that no other word be spoken to them. They were gripped with terror as God spoke from this blazing mountain and the smoke and, and the darkness and everything. They were, they were literally terrified and they begged God not to speak because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, this was what God was commanded, it must be stoned to death. In other words, you you approach God very carefully and reverently. I want you to come up the mountain, but you're coming up a mountain of fire to meet the God of fire. It says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, and of course Moses was he was one who was on like speaking terms with God he had he had approached God with the burning bush and everything else so he was a little bit ahead of, of all these people he said that Moses said I am trembling with fear awesome terrifying experience for the people and so they declined to go up the mountain only Moses went with the 70 elders and they met with God. And as they looked up at the mountain and they saw Moses going into the presence of God, they just saw God as a fire. And Moses goes into the fire. Habakkuk adds something else to our definition of revival. It's in Habakkuk 3, 1-4. to Habakkuk is a little bit diff- different from all the other prophetic books in that uh, God doesn't speak. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk is praying and making requests of God. God doesn't actually say anything to him. Listen what he says: a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, Oh, what to answer when I am rebuked, Lord, I have heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O oh, Lord, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Then he says this. God came, and he says, God came from Timar and from the holy and, and, and the holy one from Mount Paran. He's talking about the Sinai experience. And now he, he explains what it is. His glory covered the heavens, his praise filled the earth, his splendor was like the sun ray. Rays, sorry, sunshine, rays flashing from his hand. Where his power was hidden, he's calling out for God to come down, just like he did at Mount Sinai and presenced himself among the people. He said, "God, we're in such turmoil here. The enemy is overpowering us. God come down, come amongst your people, come now, and we can have the same cry when we see the declining numbers in our church and the Uh, The apparent deadness in our church and the lack of the power of God manifested around us. We just see little uh, little emblems of of something of God, but nothing like what we read about in the scriptures. He says, God, come down amongst us. We're desperate for you. In that verse four, it lists five things there. It says the glory of God covered the heavens. The heavens were full of of his glory his praise it says filled the earth as people looked up and saw the glory of god they could not contain themselves they didn't have to organize themselves into praise meetings their hands went up in praise and adoration to god because his glory filled the whole skies above them he said his splendor again the brightness of god the fire of god his splendor is like the sunrise, he says, rays flash from his hands. Speaking of the power that's often manifested when there's a revival, the power of the spirit just flows and it flows out of people and it touches lives after life. He says, rays, of, rays flashed from his hands and his power is unveiled for all to see. If you saw the power of God you could not deny him. You wouldn't have to be talked into getting born again. Having seen the power of God, you simply would have fallen. Of course, revival tells us this that God, when he turns up for revival, people literally fall down in the street and start crying out to God that God would take mercy on them, that God would forgive them, that God would save them, and we will see something of the great power of God manifested. E.J. Spool-Connor said revivals are supernatural. They're not like a crusade. They're not like an evangelistic meeting. They're not like the spirit of God hovering over a particular fellowship. He says revivals are supernatural in character and they're wrought only by the spirit of God. Another great evangelist, I'm going to quote now, a man called Christmas Evans, got a great name, isn't it? He said this, God bending down to the dying embers of a fire that is just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts again into flames. Uh, the sort of imagery I had was like a giant um, there's a, one of Roald Dahl's stories about a giant, isn't he? I don't know if you've seen that on the television. It's enormous, okay? And he visits this, this little girl, and he looks into her window. It, it, was, it was that imagery came to me. It's as though God, he bends down, and he looks inside your church, and the door opens, and God just breathes. He just breathes into the church, and just the place catches on fire. The people catch on fire. It is because the people in the church are dying embers. They're going out slowly. I mean, they are embers. They are born again. They are alive, but they're going dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And as God blows across the embers, they burst into flames. And the whole thing, it it becomes a revival by God. Revival is God visiting his people in a way far beyond anything they normally experience as i look back over the years i can recount some wonderful experiences where you know i can speak to you about toronto or speak to you about these great evangelistic crusades that i went to or in my own personal time where god has spoken to me audibly i could i could share these things with you but listen a revival is far beyond All of these things. And it doesn't touch the one or two. It comes and blows across a nation. It blows across a people. It sets people on fire. It's far beyond any normal experience that we can talk about. And when I say normal, I mean normal experiences with God. It's something beyond those. God breaking into the consciousness of men and women. Bringing majesty and glory into their hearts. It's as though all life is finished as you knew it. You say, but we've got to carry on the same. You can't. You can't. In revival, it's impossible. There are great stories and, and you can get these books and read them about the Welsh revival. In the Welsh revival, these men used to come from their shifts down the mines and instead of going home, they would go straight to the church and they would start to worship and praise the Lord and they'd find themselves in the church all night. And the mine owners had to send special men along to the churches to get the guys out of the church, back along and back into the mines as they went down into the mines. They would be singing praises and worship to God and it was, it was so exciting. It's as though your whole world is turned upside down as the Spirit of God comes with tremendous power He just fills our hearts with the majesty and the power and the glory of God. God's power and holiness born in people's hearts. Our lives become transformed in a second. The things that we think are okay, they're acceptable. There's no great sin in that. Even lots of time wasting things all go they go, they, they are cleared away as God is born in our hearts to, 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 to be praising him or to be talking about him or to be sharing about him, to be enjoying him. It just floods everything else out of our lives. We are talking of an unprecedented movement of the spirit of God, the likes that probably none of us have ever seen. The spirit coming, as it were, without measure. That's how it came on Jesus, wasn't it? It came upon him without measure. He could do anything. The power of God simply flowed from his hands, from his eyes, from his very being. The spirit coming without measure. The revival then could be said to be an outpouring of the spirit of God. Peter talks about this in Acts 3 and 19. Now, as I read this to you, Peter's not talking about Pentecost. This is what happened after Pentecost. Pentecost is in Acts chapter 2, but Peter makes reference to something after Pentecost. He says this, Acts 3 and 19. He says, repent then, making reference to as they did on the the day of Pentecost. Repent then and turn to God. That's what they did so that your sins may be wiped out. And he says this, and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So in Peter's mind, he saw people turning to God, God pouring out his spirit. Then there was this tremendous overflow of the spirit of God that we call Pentecost. And Peter is saying, do this again. We must do this again and again and again. We must come because he'd already, Peter had already seen something of the, the, the power maybe and the, the force of the spirit already waning a little bit. And he says, no, we need this. If you're going to live your Christian life, if you're going to turn from your sin and you're going to follow the Lord, you need this Pentecostal experience, this power of God to come upon you, this revival power to sustain you just as they did in the first Pentecost. So this makes the account of the first Pentecost very significant. I say it's early Acts 2. The first outpouring tells us certain things, certain characteristics that are there in revival, that are there when the Spirit of God is poured out. Once I brought that verse to you, Acts 3, you have to remember that what had happened, except for Jesus coming and John the Baptist... No prophet of God had spoken in Israel for 400 years, generation after generation. If you count a generation as 40 years, this was 10 generations, and God said nothing. And remember how they were dependent on God speaking to the prophet and speaking to them They never had what you had, which was the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in them where God can speak directly to you. God never said anything for 400 years. The people of God at that time were at their lowest ebb. It couldn't have got any lower. God had not said anything or done anything as he sends John the Baptist. They were spiritually bankrupt then the spirit of god is poured out on pentecost and literally thousands of people are brought into a new and living relationship with god himself that's what pentecost was it was nothing religious it was nothing formal it was the spirit of god coming in power and bringing people into a dynamic relationship with god imagine that happening on our streets Not across the pulpit, not in our churches, but the Spirit of God coming upon people. And they know perhaps you're a Christian. So, what they come and do, they knock on your door and they say, Lizzie or Jill or Roy, what's happening to me? Can you tell me what's happening to me? Something's just happened and I know that God is real. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've got to get right with God. I've never been to a church ever in my life. Can you help me? Can you help me? that's revival so often god doesn't bring it through the 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 formula of the church The, the welsh revival came through a man who wasn't even a minister his name was evan roberts he was a young man in his 20s and god moved powerfully the only experience he had he was a youth leader to some extent but god moved powerfully upon him And the church ministers got very angry and got very upset that God didn't come through that. He didn't come through their preaching. He didn't come through their pulpit. He chose to do it his way. You see, revival is what God does. It's not what man does. And however he's going to do it, we need to be open to the revival power of God coming in those first days then 3,000 were swept into the kingdom 3,000 on a day you say well 3,000 well Jerusalem had a population of only 40,000 so if 3,000 get born again in a day that's a lot of people and we know a few days later 2,000 more were added so already 5,000 out of a a population of of, I don't know um, 40,000 but I've got to be honest with you what had happened is it came at the time of a festival Now, normally the the population of Jerusalem was 40,000. But when there was a a festival, there were as many as 250,000 people would come to Jerusalem. And so as the spirit of God comes and he sweeps upon these people and thousands of them get born again, you can imagine what happens. They go to their own communities, their own countries. They go and they move out and they take this tremendous power of God with them. A power that is is not simply, oh, they've come to faith in Christ and they are not are not diminishing what that is. That's a powerful thing. But they're on fire. They're on fire for God as God sends them out to their different countries and their different communities. Acts 2, 1 and 2, it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. I'm glad it says violent, aren't you? I'm glad it just wasn't a wind, a little bit of a a whistle around the building. It was violent, violent. Why? Because it came from God. It was a movement of God, a violent wind. And it says, where did it come from? It didn't come from the north or the south and the east and the west. It came from heaven. It came directly from above them. It came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, the fire of God came into that room and it just just filled the whole room where the people were. Revival then is from heaven. It's from heaven, directly from heaven. Revival always starts with God. And it's people then reaching out to the unsaved. It always starts with God with the people of God, it doesn't start by regenerating non-Christians, but by reviving the Christian. God loves you. Do you understand? He loves all people, but he loves you particularly, and he doesn't want you to miss out on anything. He comes to you, his child. He wants to revive you first, and from the revival that takes place in your heart, he goes out then to the nations. D.M. Patton said this, Revival is the inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse. That's frightening. Even though we're born again of the spirit of God and God has saved us, there is the danger of becoming a corpse in the sight of God. That means lifeless, powerless, some use the word revival to apply only to Christians. They say Christians are revived. So what happens to people who aren't Christians? They say, well, they really receive an awakening. They are born again. Now, that's fine. Awakening, non-Christians, revival to the Christians. But probably it's not wise to focus so much on precise definitions. It is outside of defining. You cannot... You cannot put it in a box as it were and and, and define what it is it's far beyond that when the church is at its lowest ebb when the church is at a low ebb it is hard to tell the difference sometimes between those who are believers and those who are not believers that's scary isn't it you can meet a lot of nice people and meet a lot of nice christians and i can't tell the difference between the two that's not good enough it's not good enough to be nice we need to be on fire, the power of God burning in us, so we have a passion for the things of God. As I said, the, the scripture describes this as being either dead or half dead, a corpse as I read there. Isn't a terrible thing? I take you to a couple of examples. In Luke ten, it's a parable. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me just read this one verse in, in verse thirty. It says, this is the the poor uh, Jewish man. A Jewish man was those who should have known the, the power and the presence of God. He was one of God's children. Listen to what it says. It says, they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away leaving him. Remember what it says? Half dead. They left him half dead. This man could be said to represent God's people in the time when Christ came, they were half dead. And there's more insult added on to this because the two men who walked past him was a Levite and a priest. These two men should have been alive. They should have taken life to the half dead man. They should have revived him and helped him. But what did the church do? It simply walked past. It wanted nothing to do with this half dead man. The truth was the people of God were half dead. They needed to be revived. And who came and revived the man? But a foreigner. You see, in a a sense, you could say, well... Uh, there was no difference between the foreigner and the Jew. Well, apart from the fact the foreigner was better than the Jew, but listen, there was no difference between the two. That's one of the points God is making. One, that he was half dead, and the other, you couldn't differentiate between a priest, a Levi, and a Samaritan. They all looked the same because they weren't burning, but the Samaritan obviously had a bit more savvy than the others. In Luke uh, 15 and 32, that's the story of the parable of the, the prodigal son. Remember what he said about the son. Let me read to you verse 32. But we have to celebrate, and he says, and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. He was dead and he's alive again, even though he was a son of God because he has distanced himself from God and wants nothing to do with God. God says, he's as good as dead. He's not living in fellowship or relationship with me. He's dead and uh, Paul says, he says a very similar thing when he's talking to the ephesian church in ephesians 5 and 14 he says this this is why it is said wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and christ will shine on you he's talking to the church and listen the church in in ephesus was a powerful church it was a church that he thought was mature and alive as opposed to other churches that he wrote to but he said, Awake! Because it's going so well for you, there's a tendency to go to sleep in the things of God. As you enjoy the blessings of God in your life, you tend to just rest in that and you go to sleep. Wasn't it what he said to the uh, Laodicean church? He said, Listen, you're so blessed of God, it's almost like you've gone to sleep. Wake up! Wake up! Believers are exhorted then to wake up because. Sleeping Christians are dead Christians. Dead and half dead. In Acts 2 and 17 uh, to 21, we read these wonderful words. It's God's promises of revival. He says this, In the last days, the last days are from when the Holy Spirit came to this present day. It's 2,000 years. It says, In these last days, God says, this is what God said he will do. I will pour out my spirit on all people. It wasn't simply a one-off episode at Pentecost. For, for 2,000 years, all over the world, in different places and different times, God has been pouring out his spirit again and again and again on people. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy... Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In other words, and when I pour my spirit out, you will move in the realm of the supernatural. It is natural to move in the realm of the supernatural, to have dreams from the Lord, to have visions from the Lord, to prophesy, to speak the word of the Lord. He said, even on my servants, they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. I don't believe that's happened yet. We haven't seen what is spoken about there. It says the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. I don't believe that has happened yet. So we're, we're, I think we're on course for a mighty a revival move of God. You either believe there's going to be one or not going to be one. Me, I'm going to choose. There's going to be one. I'm going to believe that with the scriptures that I've got and to believe. And I want to see it. I don't want to die. I might be gone. It's all right. Fine. Uh, Get on with it, God. But I want to be there. I'd love to experience it and to to be part of it. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he says, will be saved. History has proved to us that this is a continual process. Pentecost is, is a continual process. You buy the books on revival. You read about them. You read about all the different revivals that has happened through the world, century after century. Hardly a century has moved where God hasn't moved somewhere in the world with a revival outpouring of power. I believe our outpouring of the Spirit on Christians in the UK is well overdue. It's well overdue. We haven't had a revival here. There was a uh, a revival in the Hebrides in the 1950s, just on those islands there in Scotland. There was an outpouring in South Wales uh, in 1905, 1906, around that time. We haven't had a revival in England for a long, long time. We need a revival. We need the outpouring of God's Spirit upon us. And as it first revives us, then it goes out from us into the world. That is what a revival is. Okay, as we do, we'd normally have a little break if we were in the school, and next time I'm with you, uh, well, next time I'm in the UK, we'll probably be in a school, although we want to stream everything. um, We're going to shoot right into our second lesson now, so if you're up for it, hang on and uh, buckle up your seatbelts. We're going to look at why is a revival necessary why is it necessary? Why can't the church get on and evangelise people? Why has God got to do this? Here's the, my, my uh, thoughts about it. It's important to see that revival in, in the context of the spiritual struggle for the souls of men, which has been going on since creation. As soon as, as, soon as Adam and Eve fell and they were banished from the garden, God sets about a plan to, to bring people to himself. And you say, well, couldn't he have done it a bit quicker? No, he couldn't have done it quicker. It takes time to work all these things out and to work it in. So it's taken 6,000 years and God is, we know that from, from century to century, God is drawing people to himself. He's building the family of God. He's building the population for the next world as it is. Now, one of the titles of God is the Lord Almighty. You know, as you read through your Bible, you go, "Hmm, I wonder why there's all these different names of God. Well, they all mean something, obviously. Uh, the Lord or the Lord Almighty or uh, El Shaddai and all these different names. They all have distinct meaning. The meaning of the Lord Almighty is he is the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies. Just a couple of references to it. This is from 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. It says, Year by year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies. And later on, it says, and she, that's the wife, she made a vow saying, O Lord almighty, not Lord, you're all powerful, but Lord, the Lord of armies, the Lord who who reigns in the whole universe with all his angelic beings. Therefore, if he is the Lord of armies and Jesus is our captain, because that's what he's called, we then must be enlisted soldiers in almighty God's almighty army. And we know that we have been commissioned as soldiers. We know what our commission is. It is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We know that, the great commission to each one of us. And although we're engaged in this work, the responsibility of saving souls, the responsibility of populating the next world is wholly the Lord's. It's the Lord's responsibility. Now, you have a responsibility as a soldier, but God has the responsibility of saving people and, and directing his troops wherever he wants them to be. An ordinary foot soldier is not responsible for the outcome of the war. He plays his part. It is the generals that are responsible for the outcome of the war and the strategy that's engaged. And so God is the one who's responsible for the salvation of men and women's souls. And the Lord, I'd remind you, is a brilliant commander. He knows exactly what he's doing He says, listen, I will build my church and the gates of hell or the strategies of Satan will not overpower me. I will move at my pace. I will save as I save. I will populate heaven in the time I will do it and nothing will thwart my plans. Revivals then are simply part of God's military strategy. As I said, it's throughout the 6,000 years Of this human history, he has been bringing people into his kingdom, his family. Sometimes slowly, uh, numerical growth has has been slow, Uh, maybe through dark ages, through dark periods. It almost seems as though the church was almost snuffed out in some areas, although it was reviving somewhere else. In other times, God has had accelerated growth of the church. We know when we read or speak about these revivals, we could see within maybe a year of the Welsh revival, uh, maybe half a million people uh, or three quarters of a million people born again, coming into the kingdom in a six-month period. And other times, it doesn't seem to be moving very fast at all. So with God, there are accelerated periods and there are slow periods. A sad thing is to be born and live in a time where god isn't doing much at all and we just have to we have to find ourselves laboring very hard for for very uh, a very meager response as it were other people they're born into times and experiences where god is doing amazing and tremendous things and they're swept along in the excitement of it all so throughout the world at different times and at different places it is part of god's military strategy in who he is saving from all the different nations how and when he is saving them why ask yourself the question why might god use a strategy of revival why would it be necessary why can't we just stick to evangelism well just look at the church we are doing evangelism but instead of the church growing and increasing it's actually declining and shrinking No matter how much we do, it isn't enough. We need the empowerment, the supernatural empowerment of God. So with the fall of man, death entered into the world. Death and decay is normal in this world. The wages of sin is death. Through sin, death entered into every aspect of the human life and the human existence. Everything around us in the world dies. Unfortunately, it also applies to individual Christians and the church. A a man or woman might be born again and excited and and thrilled with what God is doing and then he gets filled or she gets filled with the Holy Spirit and it's, it's even more exciting because you visit them in time and things have quietened down a bit the same enthusiasm, the same passion, the same thing. It's sort of got into a, a humdrum way of existing, almost like a, a, a great blanket of religion has come over things, uh, and it's lost all its passion and excitement. I've got some quotes here from uh, times in the uh, 18th century. This is in America in the 18th century. This is one writer, a man called La Tourette He says... It seems as though Christianity were a waning influence about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. I mean, that sounds terrible. It's like this, this country America that, that started with pilgrim fathers and people wanting to be free and to express themselves and to, to shake off the shackles of all the other stuff that was holding them back. They, they've lost it. it. It's all gone It's as though Christianity doesn't even matter at all. One Episcopal bishop thought the situation was so hopeless in the 18th century, he simply ceased to operate as a bishop. He just gave up. He just stopped. He says it's a waste of time. There's no point. And then in uh, 1739, I've got this quote. Um, It says, The church was asleep, both Anglicans and nonconformists, seem at least agreed on one point, to leave the devil alone and to do nothing for hearts and souls. I mean, what what a terrible confession that there was so little happening. It had got to such a low point. And of course, then we know that God comes with a revival in that period. The result, this was written by a man called Horn who wrote a popular history of the free church. He says, the whole population seemed given over to an orgy of drunkenness, which made the very name of Englishman stink in the nostrils of other nations. That's his reflection of the church and the state of our nation. So God has to step in with revival to arrest the rot that's taking place. Although we live in what's considered a first world country, And I don't know what our rating is, but we're probably one of the top six richest nations in the world. I don't know quite exactly how we we fare in that now, but we're up there. But see, from God's perspective, he might measure and gauge things a little differently. It's not about how much money we have and wealth and prosperity. It's about our spirituality. Becoming more secular as we are day by day. And we see the church attendance falling rapidly. Whichever statistic you want to go and check, you will find that the the church, the attendance of the church, is dropping. I just looked for one today to do it quickly with you. And uh, this is Peter uh, Briersley. He he writes all about statistics in the church. He said in in, in 1980, five million people attended church in this country. in the UK in 1980. By 2005, that figure had dropped to 3 million. That's 2 million less attending church. It, it's frightening because give it another 20, 30 years, statistically, no one will be going to church. Now you say, oh Philip, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. Well, where did those 2 million attendees go? What happened to them? It's not stupid. It's not ridiculous. And there's no God-given right that we would have a church in this country. There isn't a God-given right to that. And so we're desperate that God would move before we become almost an extinct. Now, I don't believe we will become extinct because, uh, because the love of God fills you with hope. And so my hope is that, of course, Christ will come and come in power and, and pour out revival in our land. in the In the church that I pastored for the last... 15 years before I sort of stepped into uh, or stepped away from from church pastoring, we had a church of between maybe 100 and 140 people. But it was like that for 15 years. It never grew. It didn't shrink. I mean, a lot of churches were shrinking. So if you could hold your own, you were doing quite well. But now you say, weren't people getting saved? Yes, they were. But but there was a great turnover of people in the church. So uh, hundreds of people joined our church, but hundreds left. So churches are filling themselves up with other people that are moving around in the churches and the number of converts are relatively slow. It's small, it's small numbers. And it probably, it just keeps pace with those that are dying and leaving the church through death. It's it's quite scary. The prayer of the church then should be that God will soon intervene and he'll breathe life into it. Until it bursts into flames again, as we were listening to in that first lesson. The second reason why God would use the strategy of revival to create a spiritual momentum. Despite all the gallant uh, efforts of church to do evangelism and and to achieve God's goal of, of reaching the lost. It's not good enough. We're slowing down. If it's like like a machine that's moving, it's becoming slower and slower and slower. And before it stops, we say, God, please come and revive us. Please cause this machine to, to move forward with some impetus and power again. Because if you leave us and you don't come, we will grind to a halt. It will stop. We're slowing down. The church is slowing down. We'll need very soon a spiritual momentum of revival to give the church the impulse that it needs. Quoting Arthur Wallace, and some of you might know that name, he says, most of the great forward movements of the church have been born in seasons of spiritual awakenings. It's true. If God never came... Often, frequently, with his revivals, the church would simply grind to a halt and it would stop. Revivals then are part of the strategy of God to bring in the harvest of God. Why might God use the strategy of revival? To restore New Testament Christianity. Revivals always tend to restore the church To apostolic Christianity. What do I mean by apostolic Christianity? Read the book of Acts. That's apostolic Christianity. Where you see the miracles. You see the deliverances. You see the healings. You see the pouring out of the spirit. you You see the power of God being manifested in people's lives. For this reason then. The book of Acts could be seen as. A model of revival. Preserved by the Spirit of God. Read Revival. Don't see it as a historical book, but see it as a record of what Revival is, the outpouring of God's Spirit, God there on every page, manifesting himself in people's lives, moving like fire through the community. Quoting again Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, The church always looks like the church in the New Testament when she is in the midst of revival. Revival is the church returning to the book of Acts. It is a kind of repetition of Pentecost. That's what we need. Not something that's just evangelistic or a crusade. Thank God for all of those and thank God for all the good things that they've done. But we need something supernatural, an outpouring of the Spirit of God something that we can't put in a box or describe, something that moves like fire through our communities. One more quote, and this is from uh, an evangelist, some of you I'm sure will know, Jonathan Edwards, 1730. It says, The apostolic times seem to have returned upon us. Such a display has there been of the power and the grace of the divine spirit at the assemblies of the people, and such testimonies has he given to the work of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards was very straight-laced. He was no raving charismatic. He was no crazy Pentecostal, I tell you that. He was a very conservative, because when the Spirit of God come, he just had to say, this is Pentecost all over again. We can't control this or stop this. We've just got to run with it, and praise God that he's moving With such power, why might God use a strategy of revival to do what we could never ever do? We have our part to play. I'm not saying don't evangelize, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying just stay at home and just pray for revival or expect revival and stop evangelizing. No, you must share Jesus with your friends when you can, when the opportunity arises. You must take every opportunity. It says in John 1, 41, 42, the first thing, the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, we have found the Messiah. This is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. There's always, always, always place for evangelism. We are to do it. But evangelism won't get the job done, I'm afraid. We need a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God to to cause us to move forward with some impetus and power and to arrest the church, it's a corpse, it's dying. It's dying and it needs needs fire breathed into it. Many will never enjoy an experience or experience a revival. I think of my father. My father was born in 1914. His his father, my grandfather, was converted in, in the Welsh Revival He became a pastor after that quite late in life. So my father was born, uh, you know, a good um, uh, eight or nine years after the revival was ebbing. But you can imagine eight years after, there was still a great fire in the hearts of the people they were still passionate because the fire of God doesn't go out in two minutes. It burns on for years and years and years. And so my father was brought up in this. And because as he would listen to people talking, his, his parents and others, they would all talk about the wonderful things of revival. And then sometimes I would ask my dad questions and my dad would tell me stories about revival, about great things happening. And it was exciting. And of course, my dad was part of a Pentecostal church. And the Pentecostal church was looking for revival all the time. It was birthed in revival. It knew the power of revival and it wanted a revival again. My father, unfortunately, passed away in 1980. So he lived all his life looking, expecting and wanting a revival. But he never saw one. But but that's not to say that, that God wasn't doing things. He was, but the t- the times, they were lean. My dad would see blessing and saving but he longed to see a revival again. So he was born between, after one and before the next one came. We shouldn't despise what's going on today. I hope I haven't come across that I'm despising what the church is doing or our efforts are small. I'm not. I'm just, we, we have to find ourselves in and out of season doing the things that God has saved us to do. I see that. But we desperately need a move of God. We need a revival. I was thinking it. It's similar to uh, in the Second World War. Uh, we we see a when when France was occupied by the enemy, we see a French resistance, don't we? And and they're very gallant men and women. They're doing they're doing precious things to 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 keep the passion of fighting the enemy alive, although they can't win on their own. It's not possible. They're never going to overthrow this Nazi regime. They're never going to overthrow the the German people, although there's lots of patrolling and harassing and skirmishing and blowing things up they're never gonna but they're looking forward to the day when the allies they come across the channel they land on the channel and they smash the germans completely out of the way that's what they're working towards but they never give up all the years that they're doing resistance they're doing it and we're doing resistance do you understand we're fighting like resistance fighters until god comes with his sovereign power and moves powerfully through our nation, liberating the people who are under the control of the enemy. Quoting Arthur Wallace again, he says, where normal means are failing, it's no use adapting or adopting extra special means. It is to the supernatural. We must turn. Are you a charismatic Christian? If you're charismatic, You believe in the supernatural. The supernatural is the answer. It is the answer to our need. It isn't rolling up your sleeves and having a a better go at it. It's not about that. We are dependent upon the supernatural power of God coming. What the efforts of ingenuity of man cannot accomplish, the Holy Spirit will perform in a moment I'm quoting Jonathan Edwards again. This is uh, 1734 in New England. This is what he said There was as much done in one day or two as at ordinary times done in a year. In a year. What he saw was God move with such power and force, sweeping, first reviving the people of God and then sweeping hundreds. And thousands into the kingdom. Revival is a necessity. It's a necessity
0: in our nation. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. And please remember to come on back next week for Lesson 2 of the Revival module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can go onto our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.